I don't know how much time most of you spend online, but if it's any, you've probably noticed there are articles out there that are designed to be what is called clickbait, meaning they're gonna have a really interesting headline and then you're gonna start reading it and then an hour later you'll be 19 articles deep and you'll realize I have wasted a lot of time, but maybe you've learned something interesting. So I, as I was thinking about the law and things like that this week, I, I found one that Reader's Digest had put together a number of years ago of some of the strangest laws in America. And so I wanted to share with you a few of my favorites because if I spent that much time reading it, I need to get some use out of this, right? So if you are in Connecticut, you cannot sell a pickle unless it bounces from a height of one foot. If you are in Iowa and you attempt to pass off margarine as real butter, you're guilty of a misdemeanor, which is punishable by up to 30 days in jail and a $625 fine. If you find yourself in Topeka, Kansas, be warned that it is unlawful to throw any stones, snowballs, or any other missiles. And if you're in University City, Missouri, there it's illegal to swing upon another person's motor vehicle and honk their horn for them. If you find yourself in Oklahoma, it is against the law to promote, engage in, or be employed by a horse-tripping event. Also, you can't wrestle a bear. And for some reason, Vermont just passed a law to say there's never going to be a law against the use of clotheslines. Now, I am the kind of person who really, really, really likes laws and rules and guidelines and orderliness. And if you want to make a bad joke that you can only make for about three and a half more months, I'm a stickler for those things. Thank you to the choir who groaned at me. I don't know if y'all can hear that. That was great. So we have a lot of rules in this country that I think are fantastic rules, right? Drinking and driving absolutely should be illegal. And stealing or damaging somebody's property should have consequences. And if you hurt someone else or put their safety in jeopardy, that is definitely wrong in my book. But as I read these laws, they seem really, really ridiculous. In fact, they're just kind of unnecessary. Do our pickles really need legislation? And I'm curious in what world throwing a snowball ever comes in the same category as missiles. Aside from maybe Pastor Paul, I don't know a lot of people who are trying to wrestle bears. And more importantly, that's the kind of problem that's gonna work itself out pretty quickly in my mind. So it strikes me that sometimes in life we live under laws that we understand and support and respect, and other times rules are a lot harder to understand and agree to. And for me, that's a little bit of the situation we're looking at in today's passage. We've got two different groups of people who are at odds, and it's not about what the law is, but about what the law means and to whom the law applies. So in our stories today, we have got two separate but closely related stories. Depending what Bible you are looking at, you might notice that they're handled a little differently. Every English Bible has a chapter break between chapter two and three, but some Bibles will run these stories together as if they're all part of one scene, and other uh, Bibles will have different headings, and, and the reasons they do that are a little bit interesting, but we're not really going to look at it today. What we're really focused on is the fact that these two stories are stories of Jesus doing things on the Sabbath that the religious leaders think ought not to be done on the Sabbath. So since Sabbath is our through line, let's start there. 
If you've spent a lot of time in church, I'm pretty sure you have heard a sermon or been to a Bible study or something about a Sabbath. This shouldn't be a brand new concept. And if you are of a certain age, depending where you grew up, you probably know about blue laws and all the different stores that couldn't be open on Sundays. And depending what your home life was like, maybe you didn't cut the grass on Sunday or go to the movies on Sunday or cook a fancy dinner on a Sunday. Throughout the week, I've talked with enough of you about Sabbath that I'm pretty sure it's a safe bet to say that for as many people as we have listening in this room or watching us online, we have the exact same number of ideas about what a Sabbath should look like. There is not today one definite answer about what a Sabbath looks like, and it seems to me that there never has been. The very earliest instructions that we get in the Bible about Sabbath come from Moses. Moses in the book of Exodus is speaking on behalf of God to the people, and he tells them, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now at this point, the people don't get a lot of instructions. There's not much of an explanation about what keeping it holy looks like or why we're remembering it. We just know that it's important. The only thing that is really clear is that Sabbath matters to God and that every seventh day he wants his people to rest from their work, to remember who God is, and that God is the source of their holiness. Now this is an absolutely beautiful concept that was designed by God, but as is so often the case, when I read these parts of the Bible, I end up with a lot more questions than answers. The way I'm wired, I really wish God had spelled out exactly what a Sabbath should look like for all people at all times in every part of the world. But that's not what we get. We, we just have this instruction to observe the Sabbath and to maintain holiness. Now, holy, as you've probably heard before, just means set apart. So I think there are a lot of ways that one might keep a day holy. And so very naturally, as time goes on, the people and their leaders develop an increasing number of rules and regulations and routines that go around this concept of Sabbath and holiness. Sometimes, many times, I might say, the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders get a really bad reputation in Christian interpretation. But I would like to give them the benefit of the doubt because I don't think that the Pharisees are trying to make the Sabbath a chore, and I don't think they wanted to overcomplicate things. I think the Pharisees and the other leaders are really well-intentioned people who get a little carried away with their rules. And this makes really good sense to me because I have recently learned that I am also a Pharisee. So. Uh, some of you know what's going on in my world. If you, if you don't, I'll catch you up. Um, so I have about a year and a half ago met a wonderful gentleman who I get to marry in April. That's why that stickler joke earlier was funny. I lose my name in April. Um, but what I gain in the process is a wonderful husband and two seven-year-olds. So in preparation for a new family life together, we bought a new house back in December, and our house has this phenomenal fire pit out back. This thing is massive. We can have epic fires because it's probably about eight feet across. And we have two seven-year-olds. Keep that in the back of your mind. So a few days before Christmas, if you'll remember, the weather was beautiful, and I decided this is such a good day for a campfire. So the kids played in the yard. Josh and I started a fire. Things were great, and our plan is we're going to roast hot dogs, and we're going to make s'mores. It was perfect campfire stuff. And so when we called the kids over to join us, 
I, being a bit of a rule maker, made one very simple rule. Don't touch the fire. A good place to start. Then as the kids got excited and got more and more active, the potential dangers were glaringly obvious to me. And suddenly my one rule of don't touch the fire turned into, okay, don't walk through the fire pit, walk around the fire pit when you need to go somewhere. And that held for a few minutes until I had to say things like, I don't want you jumping on those rocks. Those rocks are for sitting. We're not jumping by a fire. And then it turned into, okay, don't hit the logs with your stick. Just put the stick down. Stop touching the fire. But I'm a reasonable woman, so I relented in time and said, okay, fine. You can light your stick on fire, but stop waving it in your sister's face. It got more and more and more complex every time I opened my mouth, but the concept stayed the same. I didn't want them to get burnt. I didn't want them to light me or the house on fire. <clears throat> I never quite got to this point, but there was a really big part of me internally that wanted to go, do you know what? Put the sticks down, go inside. I will bring you hot dogs and s'mores there. That's, I think, exactly what the religious leaders are doing with their Sabbath regulations. They are so concerned about keeping the people and the Sabbath holy, just like I wanted to keep only the proper things on fire and everything else not on fire, that this list grew and grew and grew and grew and grew, so there's no chance of ever even accidentally breaking Sabbath and making it unholy. The Sabbath was designed as God's gift for the people and it got buried in regulations and a lot like our fire, which I built for the kids to enjoy, it almost gets smothered out in rules. By the time Jesus comes along, the Sabbath practices have been evolving and growing for several thousand years. So Moses starts out by saying no one should work on the Sabbath, not the Israelites or their children or their servants or their animals or any foreigners that happen to reside among them. But by the time Jesus gets here, the rule to not work had evolved into 39 different categories of work that were all forbidden. And a couple of those categories related to harvesting and preparing food. So when the Pharisees see Jesus' disciples picking grain in a field, their question, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath, is really a question about timing. On any other day, it is perfectly legal for them to pick the grain from a stranger's field. Only rule was you had to do it by hand and you couldn't use a tool. But the idea was with your hands, you could gather whatever you wanted, but you couldn't go and actually harvest the field. This was a really, really well-established tradition to leave part of the field unharvested just for that purpose so that the poor or people traveling could pick the grain and feed themselves. It's kind of a built-in charity in the ancient world. So the problem as the Pharisees see it is not that they're picking the grain, it's that they're picking the grain on the Sabbath. This act of plucking some grain to eat was, in the Pharisees' mind, an example of work and thus a violation of the Sabbath. But remember, these are not rules for the sake of having rules. I, I think the Pharisees truly believed that they were obeying God in the best way they possibly could by making and keeping these extra Sabbath rules. The Pharisees' goal is to honor God's commandment to keep the Sabbath and themselves holy, and to them, plucking equals working, and working equals not holy. But Jesus comes and sees things a little differently. 
He appeals to this story from the Hebrew Bible when David went into the temple and got what's called the showbread for himself and his companions to eat. And the story that Jesus alludes to is in uh, 1 Samuel 21, if you want to go back and read that later. But what's most important is that the bread is considered holy in this story. It's not a regular bread. The bread gets consecrated, it gets left on the altar, and then when it's replaced with new bread, the priests are allowed to eat the showbread. Nobody except the priests is supposed to do this, and David and his companions, none of whom are priests, take this bread and eat it. So what Jesus seems to be doing here is drawing a simple lesson, that human need takes precedence over the law. Jesus drives that concept home when he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In both cases, hungry people matter more than the rules around the food that they're eating. So Mark pairs this story with another story of Sabbath conflict. And as is so often the case in Mark's gospel, it is not at all clear exactly when this happened, how much time has passed between the grain field incident and the synagogue incident. He just tells us in his very distinct abbreviated fashion, another time this story happened. But this time, instead of a grain field, we're dealing with a man's shriveled hand, as Mark describes it, in a synagogue. So a lot like the rules about harvesting and preparing food, it was unlawful to heal somebody on the Sabbath because healing is a type of work. It's one of those 39 that were outlined. This um, was an interesting area for me to learn more about this week because the Jewish law was very, very detailed in this regard. Medical attention was allowed if someone's life is in danger. So if a woman's in childbirth, for example, uh, in that world, that was a very dangerous thing. The woman in childbirth could be helped through birth. If a wall fell on somebody, you were allowed to move enough of the wall to see if the person was alive or not. If they were alive, you could help them. If they were dead, you'd leave them till the next day. If you had a fracture, you could not have your fracture tended to. You couldn't pour cold water on a sprain. If you had a cut, you could bandage it with just a bandage, but no ointment, which basically boils down to, at the very best, an injury can be kept from getting worse, but it was absolutely against the law to make it better on the Sabbath. So once again, the religious leaders are in the synagogue, and this principle is very clear to them. There's no reason to believe that whatever is wrong with the man's hand, whether it was an injury or something from birth, is a life-threatening injury. I think if it were, we would know that detail. Surely it impacted his life as any number of medical conditions do, and I'm sure it made everyday tasks harder for him. But Mark and Jesus give us no reason to think that the man's life is in danger. So according to Sabbath rules, he should not be healed on this day. Waiting until the Sabbath was over would not make his condition worse. So to the religious leaders, this is a no-brainer. And by this point, Jesus knows what he's up against. He does something that I consider kind of odd, and he asks the man to stand up in the middle of everyone and to stretch out his hand. I say this is odd because if Jesus wanted to heal somebody simply for the sake of healing them, he could have caught up with this guy outside after synagogue service was over and dealt with the healing. But instead, he does this in the most conspicuous way possible, puts the man right in plain view of everybody, and he asks a question that doesn't get answered. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? The religious leaders don't need to answer that question. Everyone in the room knows the same laws, 
and they know the same answer. It is permitted to break the regular Sabbath laws in order to do good or to save a life. Jesus' unspoken but very clear message in this scene is that improving a life is just as important as saving someone from death. If that seems a little bit familiar to you, you're onto something. Jesus does this exact same kind of redefining of the law in the Sermon on the Mount when he says things like, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. When Jesus gets into these stories and redefines the Sabbath, he is being very true to who he always is. He doesn't get rid of the commandments of the Jewish law. It's, it's quite the opposite, actually. Jesus very consistently affirms and follows the Jewish law. But what he does is he shines a different light onto it and he reveals a different meaning to it. These stories, when you put them together, are both incredibly beautiful and incredibly frightening to me. They're, they're beautiful because they reveal that Jesus cares a lot more about the actual needs of human beings than he does about the religious systems and rules. When faced with the option to uphold a system or meet a human need, Jesus consistently meets the human need. And as much as I love lists of rules and orderliness and predictability, I am immensely grateful that Jesus throws out the playbook sometimes and does the thing that is most compassionate. I am glad he errs on that side of relationship rather than rigid obedience. That is a great source of hope and comfort and peace to me. But at the same time, these texts, they frighten me. They frighten me because we have gotten our very sinful hands all over them and we have twisted them and we have misused them in some bad ways. The first bad application of this passage that I've heard goes something like this. Well, Jesus didn't follow the rules of the Old Testament, so I don't have to either. There are two very simple things that are very wrong with this. First, you're not Jesus. And second, yes, he did follow the rules. Now, if at some point you go off and you die for the sins of humanity and you want to change the rules, we'll talk about that. Until you do, you're not Jesus. But we have a culture in which we really wanna see Jesus who doesn't do what he's supposed to do. And I think that's because our world is filled with a lot of isms. You know about these? Things like pluralism and individualism, and they matter a lot to us. And the overall gist when you put all of our isms together is you go ahead and do whatever seems right to you. We're often encouraged to speak our truth as though truth is a relative thing. And we're told that whatever feelings, experiences, or perceptions we might have, they're all perfectly valued and equally valuable. As long as it's true to you and you don't infringe upon what's true to me, it's fair game. Now, if you want a biblical example of why that doesn't work, I encourage you to go back and read through the book of Judges where everyone does what is right in their own eyes and things go sideways really, really quickly. If we look at this passage and we see Jesus as throwing out the law, it's a really slippery slope that we get on to say, well, Jesus didn't keep the Sabbath, so this other thing in the Old Testament that I don't care for, 
we can get rid of that too. But Jesus doesn't abolish the law. He comes and fulfills it. There is nowhere that I'm aware of that Jesus says the Sabbath is unimportant. And there is nowhere that I'm aware of that he says we should get rid of Sabbath. What he does is takes away years and years and years of extras that are built up around the basic commandment to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. He's not giving us license to throw out the Old Testament and he's not saying the law is bad. Jesus is taking us back to the very heart of the Old Testament law. He isn't telling us we can pick and choose whatever parts of scripture we like and only pay attention to those. And he's not advocating for moral and ethical free-for-alls where we all get to do whatever we like and embrace only what's comfortable and easy and forget about the parts that aren't. In my experience, it seems to me that the way of Jesus is very rarely, if ever, the easiest way or the path of least resistance. In fact, when it comes to things like this, I'd be willing to argue that it is a lot easier to keep a long list of rules, um, no matter how long it is, rather than just have a guiding principle. After all, that's why the rules got invented in the first place, because it's easier to know what exactly you can and cannot do. But as the list got longer, the central point got more and more and more obscured. And so Jesus points right back to the heart of the law, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So is it holy to abstain from work and to take time to rest? Absolutely it is. And is it holy to do the work of helping somebody? Yes. And which one is really Sabbath? Both. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus says. There are times when the right thing to do is to rest from our work. The cycle of work and rest is built into God's plan from the very creation of the world. For six days, God creates, and on the seventh, he rested. When we rest, that is the time we reflect on who God is. When we stop working, we remember and reenact with our bodies the truth that our lives don't depend on our work, but on God's grace. The ancient Israelites believed so strongly in this principle that there are a number of accounts of them being utterly slaughtered in, war, in wartime because their enemies knew that they wouldn't fight back on the Sabbath. Not only would they not attack, they wouldn't defend themselves. Now, whether or not you think that's wise from a military strategy standpoint, it's a powerful statement of trust in God. When we stop working, we create space to watch God work, to hear God speak, and to feel God move. That is a holy experience. And practicing that kind of Sabbath makes us a little bit more like God and a little bit more holy. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus says. And there are times when the right thing to do is to work for the good of others. From cover to cover in the Bible, God is relentlessly working for the redemption of his entire creation. And I believe that the world God imagines doesn't have things like disease and wars and homelessness and hunger and heartache and loneliness and loss. There is something profoundly important about us doing the work that God does, clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and giving hope to the destitute and proclaiming release to the captive. And when we join God in that work, when we do something to serve others, to bring them comfort and peace and grace and hope, we are becoming a little bit more like God 
and a little more holy. So what's the answer, right? What does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? Do we rest? Do we work? Yes. If we look at what Jesus does, he starts with a principle of resting from work. But he doesn't let that rest prevent him from dealing with an obvious, immediate human need that is right in front of him. I don't know what people and what needs God might put in front of me or in front of you or in front of us as a church as we try to practice our times of Sabbath. But I know this much. If we're really trying to be disciples of Jesus, we need to rest. We need to trust that God keeps working when we cease from our labors, and we need to abide in God's presence and goodness without an agenda or a task list. But I also know that if God presents us with a person in need and an opportunity to be his hands and his feet in the world, no matter what day it says on the calendar, we also must act. Now, if you walk away from this message today with a list of rules, even if it's a shorter list of rules than what you had when you started, we have all missed the point collectively. The model that Jesus gives us is not religion that's defined by a set of rules. It's relationships that are defined by compassion and mercy. And so the question we ought to walk away with is, is our faith leading us to serve others or to preserve our comfort? If we find ourselves so focused on protecting our religion that we can make convincing excuses not to meet the needs of other people, then just like the Pharisees, we've missed the point of the law and Jesus. Our faith, our core convictions, these are so much more convincingly exhibited in what we do than in what we don't do. Sometimes we rest, sometimes we work. All the time, we trust God to show us which is the right Sabbath for that time. May we never get so wrapped up in the rules that we miss an opportunity to act. Let's pray together. Lord, you have given us such a wonderful and holy gift of Sabbath. You have shown us the joy and the value of resting. And you also give us wonderful opportunities to act, to be your hands and your feet in the world, to do your good deeds that you've set before us. We pray that you would give us the wisdom to know when to rest and when to act that you would give us the grace to rest and know that we don't need to do everything, and that you give us the courage to act in the ways that you would like us to. We pray that you would show us what it means to be your people, and that by following you, by resting and by working, we would grow ever more and more holy as we are transformed into the image of your son, Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.